Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Scott Sumner. Scott is a research associate on monetary policy at the Mercatus Center. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. There's, Scott, we did an episode a few months ago on, on my Big Ideas podcast uh, about the financial crisis, the, the Great Depression, Great Recession. Uh, who knew we would be facing uh, uh, something this dire so soon? That's right. I think I probably predicted we wouldn't have a recession this year. But, uh, obviously, uh, that was incorrect. So l- let's give your, your summary on how do you think we've responded to it? Have, have we responded um, to your liking? Have we responded incrementally better, as, as you like to say? Um, where have we done well and where have we not done well in terms of uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy? Why don't you sort of give a, give a little bit of an overview? Okay, well, we need to start with the fact that this is a very unusual kind of shock. It's, it's what sometimes called a real shock. And one way to, to think about how it's different from normal recessions is normally you think in terms of a shortfall in demand. If we could just get people to spend more, that would juice the economy, create jobs, and so on. In this particular environment, we're actually discouraging people from going out and spending money. So it's, it's not the sort of problem that policymakers are used to dealing with, and it's not a problem that can obviously be addressed by just injecting more money into the economy. There's actual real problems in terms of being able to produce goods and services uh, due to the need to social distance. So we have to really start there. We have a very unusual problem. I think it's, in some respects, almost unique. Uh, I don't think there's ever really been a recession at all like this in U.S. history. And uh, to sort of see that, if you look at one of the graphs of unemployment, the way it's shot up to a level uh, unprecedented in recent weeks, um, that's, that's an indicator of how different this is. So with that introduction, I, think, I do think, however, that there are some things that monetary policy can do, even though it is a real shock. The real and the monetary side of the economy interact. So real shocks can also contribute to a shortfall in spending over time, and that can be addressed through monetary policy. And one indication that we have that problem developing is that so far the shock seems to be sort of deflationary, reducing inflation. And, you know, in textbook economics, we're usually taught that a supply shock is inflationary. You know, you cut off supply of goods and prices go up. But we're seeing a supply shock leading to a fall in the inflation rate. And that means it's bleeding over into the demand side of the economy. And over time, it could sort of morph from being a real shock to being a demand shock like a normal recession. So that's what we have to avoid with monetary policy. Okay, so you're saying we have to, the Fed should be, should be mindful of that. Is the Fed being being mindful? And what would you be doing uh, if you were sort of controlling the levers that's different from perhaps what's happening now? 
Right. So I think they're somewhat mindful of that problem, but not sufficiently. So uh, just as in 2008, I think there's sort of a partial misdiagnosis of what's going on here. They're treating this as sort of a financial or credit problem more than as an aggregate demand problem. And by that, I mean, they're assuming that what we need to go in, do is go in and fix the credit markets to make sure firms are able to get loans and so on. And that may be important, but I don't think that's really the core of the problem right now. The real problem is the danger that there'll be a collapse in aggregate demand and that monetary policy will be insufficiently expansionary. And this is a mistake, by the way, that we made in 2008. We thought that if we fixed the banking crisis, that would take care of the problem. And the Fed really wasn't concerned with aggregate demand in 2008. When they eventually did bail out the banking system, they learned they had a huge aggregate demand problem on their hands. And then in 2009, they started the QE programs and so on. So what I'd like to see the Fed do is sort of get on top of the demand problem early, even though right now it won't do much to help because of the shutdown. But over time, it'll help if they do a more aggressive monetary stimulus. And that would really involve two components. One is uh, what's called level targeting, which is promising to bring the price level back up to the trend line over the next year or two. And the second is a whatever-it-takes approach to uh, achieving that goal. And that means committing to buy as many assets as necessary to get inflation or prices back up to their target level. So the Fed's had this 2% inflation target. And we're likely to fall well below that this year. So they should promise to try to get back up to the trend line with, if necessary, higher than 2% inflation going forward. And have they done this before? Or You've been talking about level targeting for, for a long time. Have they, have they adopted it? Uh, and if not, why not? No, there's a lot of institutional resistance within the Fed to level targeting. Uh, just to give you an example, Ben Bernanke had favored that approach for Japan in the early 2000s. When he got to the Fed, he suggested it as a meet, at a meeting and was kind of shot down by the Fed staff. And so nothing was done on level targeting. And then when he left the Fed, Bernanke again began to advocate level targeting. So it's an idea that's very popular with academics. But I think the thing the Fed fears is that level targeting makes it very clear that the Fed is responsible for nominal variables like inflation, or I would argue even nominal GDP. Under the current system, it's easier for the Fed to sort of deflect responsibility from a failure. Like you can have three years in a row with 1% inflation, even though you have a 2% target, and you can say, well, we just fell a little bit short, but there were some shocks and we'll do better next year. And you can keep doing that over and over again. And it's not obvious to the public that a huge mistake is being made. But if you have a level target, each year you fall below, half of the price level falls further and further below the 2% trend line. And the miss in monetary policy becomes much more obvious. And it, it puts a lot of pressure on the central bank to be far more aggressive in hitting its targets. It sort of takes ownership over the price level in a way that it always should have, but wasn't really apparent under inflation targeting. So it's a subtle difference, but it's one that I think the Fed understands would put it much more under the spotlight than it is with inflation targeting. Right now, the Fed sort of does a series of gestures. And if they work, great. If they don't, people sort of say, okay, fine, try better next time. But 
if you're actually targeting the price level, there's a much more specific way in which policy uh, will be judged. The criteria is very specific. Here's where prices are supposed to be. And if you fall increasingly short of that, it becomes very embarrassing for the central bank. Is it that the people who have the powers of be uh, the Fed you know, substantively disagree with you? Or is it that they agree, but it's just politically unfeasible for, for whatever reason? Like what needs to be true for, you know, in your, in your mind for the Fed to adopt these, you know, these types of policies? That's a good question. So they are having a um, study right now at the Fed, a, a sort of a one or two year long study reevaluating their monetary policy approach. There are rumors that the Fed might move towards what's called average inflation targeting, which is sort of like going halfway towards level targeting. In average inflation targeting, you target the average inflation rate over a multi-year period. So that's an indication there is awareness within the Fed of the logic behind the level targeting argument. I also think, though, that you know central banks are very conservative with a sort of small C conservative. They're reluctant to change. Um, the Fed did announce inflation targeting um, back around 2012 and committed to a 2% inflation target. And although price level targeting isn't that different, you could still have a 2% trend line for inflation. I think the Fed is a little reluctant to uh, just jump into something that's untested. No other country, as far as I know, does level targeting. Um, in the case of inflation targeting, it began with small countries like New Zealand and then Canada later, and then the U.S. adopted it. So, you know, being risk averse, I think there's a little bit of a reluctance to jump into a target that really commits them much more forcefully to certain courses of action and in some ways reduces their discretion quite a bit over the current system. I don't know exactly how much consideration is being given there. But I do know that people within the Fed are very aware of the academic arguments in favor of level targeting. Yeah. And when you say reduces that discretion, does that mean sort of it doesn't make them look as smart, like it's a more epistemologically modest or humble strategy? Yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to, to think about this discretion question. For instance, you probably know there's uh, hawks and doves at the Fed. The doves favor more expansionary policy. The hawks favor more contractionary policy. Now, in a sense, that's kind of bizarre, given that they all agree formally on a 2% inflation target. So really, the only disagreements within the Fed should be technical, not ideological. Like You shouldn't have people that are consistently hawkish or consistently dovish. But as long as you have a 2% inflation target, you can kind of have that in a sense where the hawks could sort of say, well, if we undershoot a little bit each year, that's fine with me because I prefer lower inflation. But if you switch to level targeting, you can't really have that anymore. You, you can't have hawks and doves in the sense that we do today. Like if you have inflation undershoot one year at only 1%, you know, below the 2% target, then the next year they have to aim for 3% inflation. And hawkish people don't like having to aim for 3% inflation. So in a sense, if you switch to level targeting, that sort of forces all the hawks and doves to really have the same objective. They should all be trying to get prices along that trend line because failing to do so forces them to do uncomfortable things to push inflation uh, back to the trend line, which might be a little bit painful. That's one way of thinking about how moving to level targeting implicitly does sort of reduce the discretion of the central bank. It, it, it commits them to a path over time that uh, is much more specific 
than just sort of a general inflation target done one year at a time. I mean, you could think of this analogy maybe with a, a steering a ship across the ocean. If you're just steering in a general direction like west, you have some discretion if you miss as to where you're going to end up, right? But if, you're, if your destination is to cross the ocean and land in New York, then any miss to the north or south on your path has to be made up in the future so that you end up at that destination. So you're much more constrained in the long run in terms of how you direct the ship if you have a destination like New York City versus a general destination of I'd like to go west from Europe. Does that analogy make sense? Or Yeah, totally. And is it fair to say you're a dove in that you, you believe, you know, of, of most of the recessions, we should have been, you know, much more expansionary. We can typically be more. How do you think about that? Well, I don't really think of myself as a dove because for half of my life, I was relatively hawkish for, you know, my younger decades, we were overshooting the inflation target by quite a bit. So what I would say is that I, I take the, the target seriously. And my criticism of hawks and doves is some of them maintain their, their general view when it's not appropriate. So you're right that in recent years, I've often been dovish because we have been undershooting the Fed's target. But what I would criticize is people who, um, let me give you an example. Sometimes you'll see hawks say, well, we should focus like a laser on inflation and not worry about unemployment. Okay, that's typically the statement you'd get from a hawkish central banker. But then in Europe, when inflation was running well under their target and focusing like a laser on inflation should have caused, you know, call for easier money. Many of those same hawks in Western Europe were reluctant to do monetary stimulus in order to get inflation up to the target. So rather than think of myself in terms of hawkish or dovish, I think in terms of taking seriously the commitment, setting a reasonable target and committing to achieve that target over time. And whether I'm hawkish or dovish at a moment in time depends on which side we're missing. And is it fair to say that during the uh, Great Recession or Great Depression or, or what Japan was going through, we needed to be more expansionary? Yeah, during the Great Depression, also during the Great Recession. Yeah. Conversely, during the Great Inflation from the mid-60s to 1981, we were quite a bit too expansionary. Totally. And why were we, why were we too uh, uh, exp- expansionary during, during that time? Like, What did we not... Fully appreciate well, there's an interesting story there. So today, the general view is we had a excessively expansionary monetary policy because um, policymakers and economists as a whole were misdiagnosing the situation for a variety of reasons. Um, they put too much weight on fiscal policy. They put too much weight on supply shocks, on oil shocks, on the power of labor unions. Many people were on record saying there wasn't much monetary policy could do about the situation. Ironically, today, there's almost universal agreement that monetary policy has almost infinite ability to reduce inflation because there's no limit to how much you can tighten monetary policy. And once we figured that out in the early 80s, we and other countries got inflation under control and kept it under control. So it turned out the pessimists were wrong in the 1960s, but now we have this sort of opposite pessimism that the, the low inflation in recent years is something that monetary policy can't do much about. And in the 1960s, people kind of would have laughed at that, that, you know, the idea that a central bank would be unable to create 
Inflation would have been considered a bizarre theory in the 60s or 70s. And today we view it as bizarre that people back then thought they couldn't reduce inflation through monetary policy. So here's my take on that. When central banks make mistakes, the consensus is that, well, these guys are experts. So if they're making this, they're not hitting their targets. It must mean they're somehow unable to. They don't have enough power to do that because they seem like very reasonable, uh, thoughtful people. They're doing sort of what a consensus of economists favors. So if they're missing, they must simply be unable to achieve that. And I think that's because we're sort of too close to the situation in the moment to see the mistakes that are being made. It's only when you look back at the Great Depression or the Great Inflation of the 70s that you clearly see the mistakes that were made. And, you know, I've been in recent years trying to shine a spotlight on the Great Recession, arguing that we clearly made mistakes with excessively contractionary monetary policies, but we didn't see it because central banks were kind of doing what the consensus favored, at least in the U.S. Europe, it was probably tighter than the consensus of economists favored. So that, that was on the two expansionary areas. In, in the times where we were too contractionary, wh- why were we too contractionary? Do we admit that we were? Do, do, we, do, we, do we learn from that? You're talking about the, the Great Depression yeah. and the Great Recession? Yep. We were too contractionary, and we have learned. Um, one of the reasons is that we tend to look at monetary policy through the lens of interest rates. So when we're too contractionary, it pushes the economy into a deflationary recession. And that pushes interest rates down towards zero. And many people wrongly think that zero interest rates are easy money. So they kind of look at this, this picture this way. They say, well, interest rates are close to zero, so money must be easy. And if we're still struggling, then obviously monetary policy is not the solution. In fact, the zero interest rates are the effect of previous tight money. So that leads to sort of a misdiagnosis of the situation. It becomes even worse if you do QE because people are hoarding money at the zero interest rates. The QE is also, in a sense, a symptom of the tight money, which drove interest rates to zero and led to the hoarding of money. So it's very, very easy to misdiagnose, and it's often only possible in retrospect to really see what happened. Now, in retrospect, even Ben Bernanke has argued that the Federal Reserve was to blame for the Great Depression. He famously made that statement in a a birthday dinner for Milton Friedman, who had argued that for decades. And Bernanke said something to the effect of, Milton, you're right, we did it, and we won't do it again. This was around 2003, I think. So Bernanke and people at the Fed had learned their lesson about the Great Depression, also about the Great Inflation of the 60s and 70s. But it's so hard to see what's going on in real time because when you're Looking at the situation up close, the symptoms of the crisis look like the cause. So during the Great Recession, we again had banking problems, just like in the early 1930s. And it looked like those banking problems were causing the recession, whereas they were probably mostly a symptom of falling nominal spending, an excessively tight monetary policy that was allowing spending to fall very sharply. And with nominal GDP falling, there's much less income being earned in the economy to repay loans. So that took a a mild banking crisis and made it a much more severe banking crisis in late 2008. So initially, they thought they could fix the banking problem, and that would solve the problem. As, As I said, it didn't. And then the Fed figured out, okay, we've got a problem here with lack of aggregate demand. And that's when you had the monetary stimulus begin. 
But by that time, interest rates had fallen to zero and it was more difficult. Uh, so again, the Met Fed miscalculated. They thought the zero rates and a little bit of QE were enough. It wasn't enough. And then they had to do additional QE and forward guidance and uh, you know, eventually got a recovery. The Europeans did much less stimulus, monetary stimulus than the U.S., so they ended up with a double-dip uh, recession. In fact, Europeans actually raised interest rates twice in 2011, uh, so they were uh, way off course with monetary policy and, as I say, ended up in a much worse situation, even though the crisis started in the United States. It ended up being far more severe in Europe because of monetary policy errors. And it's my understanding, I think I heard you say in the Macro Musings podcast in 2017, that in some sense, the fiscal policy sort of counteracted the monetary policy a little bit uh, in, um, in 2008. Talk about the relationship between fiscal policy and monetary policy in, in times of, of recession. Right. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about what I call monetary offset. This is the notion that if the central bank is targeting aggregate demand and in order to control inflation, then any other factor that affects aggregate demand will have to be offset by monetary policy. So if the Fed feels they've set, say, interest rates at the right level to get 2% inflation, and you do fiscal stimulus, the Fed will simply have to raise interest rates to prevent the fiscal stimulus from raising inflation above 2%. By the way, that's exactly what the Fed did in 2017 and 18, when we had a lot of fiscal stimulus after Trump was elected. And the Fed raised interest rates to prevent inflation from overshooting. Now, the Fed raised rates a little too much there, but, you know, they were trying to keep inflation at about 2%. This is actually not a controversial theory. Today, it's associated with uh, market monetarism, my views, and other similar economists. But this was the Keynesian view um, before the Great Recession. Uh, There was an editorial written by Paul Krugman back in early 2001 where he talked about monetary offset. He talked about the fact that you know, the Bush tax cuts wouldn't really stimulate the economy if the Fed raised interest rates to offset the effect. So the real controversy today is whether this monetary offset idea also applies when interest rates are zero. So there's sort of two views. The Keynesians are skeptical of monetary policy at zero interest rates. They think it's not very effective and therefore they favor monetary stimulus. My view is that monetary policy is still very effective at zero rates, and there's a lot of, I think, empirical evidence that it continues to offset fiscal policy even when interest rates are zero, although I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I think it's just the general tendency, let's say, for monetary policy to usually offset fiscal policy. So for that reason, I'm not a fan of fiscal stimulus, and I think monetary policy is more effective. It's also a lot uh, less costly because fiscal stimulus adds to the national debt, which means future tax burdens on the public go up. Monetary stimulus does not add to the national debt. It does not increase future tax burdens for the public. You mentioned you know, monetary policy being effective when rates are zero. Talk, talk about the different levers by which uh, we, we can implement monetary policy that, that, we, that we can pull uh, in different directions? Because some people think monetary policy is rates, is interest rates itself. Right. So why don't you talk a bit, a bit about that? Right. So at a more fundamental level, monetary policy is about the supply and demand for what's called base money. That is money produced by the government. Uh, for your listeners, the cash in their wallet is the most familiar base money, but it also includes bank reserves that are electronic. So the Fed 
basically uh, determines the amount of base money in the economy through its policies. And it also influences the demand for base money through policies like uh, interest on bank reserves. So through these levers, the Fed has almost infinite ability to affect the value of money, its purchasing power. Uh, if they wanted to, and I, I'm obviously not suggesting this, but if they wanted to, they could create hyperinflation like you see in Venezuela or Zimbabwe by flooding the economy with money. Now, why is the conventional view somewhat different from mine? I think it's partly because of what I mentioned earlier. During recessions, it often looks like central banks are doing an easy money policy. They have low rates. Sometimes they do QE. But often these are defensive moves reacting to a weak economy produced by earlier tight money policies. So when you see the Fed do zero rates and QE and the economy remains weak, it's very easy to become pessimistic. But think about this thought experiment. Um, let's take the case of Japan that has been stuck at the zero bound for, I don't know, 30 years almost. People argued for a long time the Bank of Japan could do nothing to create inflation. But, but obviously that can't be true because the Bank of Japan could simply promise to buy unlimited or sell, I'm sorry, unlimited amount of Japanese yen at a price of 200 to the dollar, 300 to the dollar, or 1,000 to the dollar, and sharply depreciate the Japanese currency and thereby create very rapid inflation in Japan. They could promise to buy up all of the assets in the world with Japanese yen coming off the printing press. You know, the stocks, the bonds all around the world and simply pay for them with money coming off the printing press. Now, obviously, the rest of the world is not going to sell all of their assets to the Bank of Japan for yen currency that would soon become worthless. The point of that thought experiment isn't that the Japanese would do this or should do that, but rather if they committed to do whatever it takes to raise inflation and started down that road, the rest of the world would immediately see what's going on. The yen would fall sharply in the foreign exchange markets, and you'd get a lot of inflation in Japan before they had to print very many yen at all. So it's really more about commitment to do whatever it takes than it is about concrete steps of what to do with interest rates, what to do with the money supply, and so on. And the mistake people make is they look at concrete steps that were taken as a defensive mechanism, responding to a demand for liquidity during a crisis and confuse that with aggressive steps that are part of a commitment to do whatever it takes to create inflation. If you ser seriously commit to buy whatever it takes to create inflation, you can certainly do so. Now, I don't mean to suggest that's necessarily politically easy. For instance, if the Japanese started down that road of buying up the world's assets, the U.S. would immediately complain and maybe even threaten a trade war with Japan. So, you know, there can be political difficulties in doing what I've suggested. But in a technical sense, if you print enough money, you can always create inflation. And why, why would the U.S. get get, uh, get threatened? Can you unpack that? Or why well, um, there's this sort of like convention that I think is kind of silly, but it's out there among the so-called very serious people, which is it's okay to do monetary stimulus if you buy your own country's assets. But if you buy foreign assets, that's, quote, currency manipulation. And that means you're trying to steal jobs away by running a trade surplus. So for that reason, countries are discouraged 
from buying a lot of foreign assets to stimulate their economy. And the Bank of Japan has mostly bought uh, domestic bonds and domestic stocks and so on. So, I mean, I do have some sympathy for the uh, Bank of Japan. They got so deep into their liquidity trap of zero interest rates that it, it's very difficult for them now to create inflation because they have to buy a lot of assets. But I do think that they're also making a fundamental mistake that they're just doing a series of gestures. And if they really committed to do whatever it takes, even just exclusively among domestic Japanese assets, they could eventually, or not eventually, they could quickly create inflation because the public would quickly see where they're going with that policy. Inflation expectations would rise. The Japanese public would be less anxious to hoard a lot of base money that doesn't earn any interest at all if you start down the road to higher inflation. So it's, it's, it's a question of, is the threat credible? Once you create a credible threat to create inflation, people that are currently hoarding a lot of base money that doesn't earn any interest will suddenly desire to put that money to work, hold assets that'll be inflation hedges like real estate and stocks and other things. They'll start to reduce their demand for money and that will quickly push up prices. But without that credible threat, and the Japanese have never really made a credible threat to inflate, uh, the Japanese public is content to just sit on that zero interest money and they remain stuck in a, a, a low inflation environment. Although it has improved a little bit since new leadership took over the Bank of Japan in 2013, but um, they're still below their inflation target. I read somewhere that the, the Fed is buying junk bonds. Is that significant in any sort of way? Or how about the specific sort of implementations or manifestations by which the Fed can, can make some of the things we're talking about happen? Does it matter, those specific methods? It does matter a little bit, maybe not as much as people think. But interestingly, for the last couple of years, I've been advocating that the Fed go to Congress and ask for permission to buy riskier assets. And I never envisioned this crisis, but it turns out in this crisis, they did go to Congress, ask for permission to buy riskier assets, and got permission. Now, you'd think I'd be thrilled, but the reason I favored that request for permission wasn't that I wanted the Fed to buy riskier assets. Rather, I wanted them to be able to have that threat in order to increase the credibility of their inflation promises. So I wanted the Fed to be able to say to the markets, look, we're going to do whatever it takes to create inflation, even if that means buying riskier assets. However, I would still prefer the Fed buy safer assets first and only move on to riskier assets if there weren't enough safe assets to buy. So my preference for that was sort of as a threat, not necessarily the reality, or only buying them if absolutely essential. Now, in this situation, the Fed has diagnosed the problem, as I mentioned earlier, as a credit problem, not a monetary problem. So they're buying the risky assets to help the credit markets, to help reduce panic in people selling riskier assets and driving a price lower. And so I have mixed feelings. I mean, in a sense, I'm happy they're being aggressive. That, that does inject money into the economy when they buy riskier assets. But I would prefer... They buy safer assets because it doesn't expose the public to as much risk of loss. And um, it's, uh, you could argue it's sort of more neutral in some sense to buy treasury bonds, which means the government is merely buying back its own debt when it's issuing money. Uh, once they start in 
intervening in credit markets, there's going to be accusations of favoritism. You know, why are they buying jump bonds and not helping, I don't know, small business or something like that? So it's kind of a little bit of a slippery slope, and it starts to cross the line a little bit into fiscal policy, although I would argue that people overstate the extent to which it's fiscal policy. There's still a very, very big difference between having newly created money go into the economy and buying assets versus true fiscal policy, which is where you take money already out there through taxes or borrowing from one set of people and move it to a different set of people. That's what fiscal policy does. It doesn't create new money. It moves money around from one sector to another. With monetary policy, you're actually creating new money and you're injecting it. With fiscal policy, you're running up a national debt. With monetary policy, you only have a slight increase in debt if the assets you buy fall in value. And historically, the Fed usually makes a profit on its purchases of assets, so it hasn't really historically been a a factor that increases the national debt. Although it could. I mean, if they buy a lot of junk bonds and they go down a lot and they later sell those bonds, that, that would at least slightly increase the national debt. What are the political challenges here? Is government pressured to do more fiscal stimulus to make itself look better or more powerful? Or what are the sort of non-obvious you know, political incentives here? Well, yeah, there's some of both here. <clears throat> so first of all, there's a lot of very respectable economists that disagree with me and do favor fiscal stimulus. So obviously that helps uh, that it's supported intellectually by a lot of top economists. And, and what's their and, argument? What, what's the best argument? Well, their argument is that monetary policy is not very powerful at the zero interest rate. And I've already indicated I don't think that argument's correct. I think it kind of misdiagnoses the situation. But, you know, if that's right, let's say I'm wrong about the what the Bank of Japan could do if it really wanted to do. If you have that view that monetary policy is out of ammunition, you might favor fiscal stimulus as an alternative. And that view, I think, is more powerful among the uh, Democratic Party, which tends to, I think, align a little bit more with elite opinion among economists that say Ivy League institutions, right? So that's sort of the respectable intellectual case for fiscal stimulus. When interest rates hit zero, you run budget deficits to stimulate the economy. Now, obviously, politicians love to spend money and hate to raise taxes. So there's also sort of the political pressure for fiscal stimulus. And we actually sharply increased the budget deficit between about 2015 and 2019, from a half a trillion to a trillion. That sort of fiscal stimulus was mostly opposed by elite economists because the unemployment rate has only been around three and a half percent before the recession. So there was no obvious reason to run trillion-dollar deficits before this recession. And if you ask why were we doing that, it was probably because it was politically popular to spend more and cut taxes. That, you know, that would be, it wasn't like there was a lot of intellectual support for doubling the budget deficit from 2015 to 2019. On the other hand, the so-called, uh, you know, Obama stimulus of 2009, that was during a, a deep recession with zero interest rates. So a lot of elite economists did favor fiscal stimulus in that environment. I was skeptical, but I was in the minority. So I think you have to, you know, look at fiscal stimulus two ways. There's a political dimension to it. It's often popular. And there is an academic argument for it when interest rates are stuck at zero. Um, I don't think that academic argument is correct, but, you know, it's certainly a reasonable argument. Totally. 
And so what is the, the legacy of, of our quantitative easing sort of uh, increase, you know, since, since 2008, H- has it uh, been effective? Um, have, has it not been enough? Uh, what are our thoughts there? Yeah. So any monetary policy tool is only effective if employed as part of an effective overall regime. Right. So I think that it's not even a question in a sense to ask whether QE works or whether a change in interest rates work. You really have to consider these in the context of what the central bank is trying to do and how much it's willing to do and how much credibility its policy has. So, you know, for instance, a cut in interest rates doesn't help the economy at all if the so-called natural interest rate falls even faster. And QE doesn't help the economy if the public's desire to hoard money is increasing faster than QE is being injected in the economy. So in my view, the QE programs of the Great Recession helped a little bit. The financial markets seemed to think they were helping a little bit because they responded positively to news about QE. But I don't think the QE had a major effect in the economy. Uh, I, I would say it perhaps explains why the U.S. did somewhat better than Europe. Uh, maybe that's one way to look at it. But on the other hand, if QE were employed as part of an effective overall regime like level targeting, then I think QE would be highly effective, far more effective than the actual QE programs we've done so far. So my view is that if you have a level targeting regime promising to come back to the previous trend line and a whatever-it-takes approach to QE, a promise to buy as much many assets as necessary to hit your target, and a sincere commitment to do that, that sort of QE is highly effective, in a sense, 100% effective. I wanted your opinion on modern monetary uh, theory, what you think about it and what we think about sort of um, the perception of it post-crisis, because it it seems that certainly in the cryptocurrency community uh, and and others, people are concerned about sort of the... um, you know, what, what could happen to inflation possibly in terms of all, all the, the money printing. But I think we're seeing um, just how powerful the dollar is uh, globally. W- 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 what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on all this? Well, yeah, MMT means different things to different people. You know, there's sort of a theoretical model, which I don't like. It's almost the opposite of my model of the economy. But even people that are less mo- much less monetarist than I am, like, uh, Paul Krugman, for instance, is somewhat dismissive of their theoretical model. I think it sort of confuses accounting identities with causal factors. Uh, have, although I have to admit that I find the model so hard to understand, I'm not certain I've got it 100% correct. There's also the term MMT is used in the context of various policy proposals, um, such as fiscal stimulus or combined fiscal monetary stimulus or skepticism as to whether inflation will result from a lot of debt and or preference for zero interest rates, various things like that. And, you know, I've been arguing for a long time that fear of inflation is overstated. So to the extent that MMT people are also saying that the risk of inflation is overstated, you know, that that part may be correct. But, you know, as, as sort of a model of the economy, it's, it's very, very far from my own view. I don't think they have any plausible model for what happened during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, I don't think they really understand the supply and demand for money and how it determines prices and nominal GDP. But, 
you know, there's skepticism about inflation um, being very likely that that may turn out to be um, justified. It's, it's always hard to say because it depends on future policy actions. And even MMTers would say that there's some risk of inflation if things are excessive in some sense in terms of, you know, stimulus. But yeah, can, can you say more about how your model is the opposite, though? In, in what way? Well, so I focus on how monetary policy controls inflation. And um, my understanding is that MMTers often think that changes in money supply really don't have much effect and that it's, it's actually fiscal policy that determines inflation combined with whether the economy is overheating or at capacity or has slack. I think there's overwhelming evidence that monetary policy is far more important than fiscal policy in determining inflation. And if you look at the history of inflation, we've had long periods of zero inflation on average, and then we've had very, very high inflation during certain decades. And then since 1990, we've averaged about 2% inflation. And the most plausible explanation is monetary policy errors. And then they figured that out. And after 1990, the Fed started targeting inflation, first implicitly, then explicitly at about 2%. Now, if you wanted to have an alternative theory of how we ended up with 2% inflation since 1990, that was based on fiscal policy, then what would that theory be? That Congress suddenly decided to target inflation at 2% in the early 90s and you know, through very sophisticated handling of the budget deficit, kept inflation on average in the 1% to 3% range most of the time, you know, that, that makes no sense to me at all. Uh, if you look cross-sectionally around the world, you see countries with very expansionary monetary policies have high rates of inflation. When you look at natural experiments where there's clearly exogenous changes in monetary policy, you often see a dramatic effect on nominal variables like inflation and nominal GDP. So, yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, I've studied monetary policy my whole life, and I think the evidence overwhelmingly supports either the monetarist model or sort of a hybrid New Keynesian model, which has elements of monetarism in it. And MMT, as far as I can see, is sort of the opposite extreme, you know, taking Keynesian ideas to the, to the extreme and almost completely rejecting monetary policy as a factor in determining the path of inflation over time. Now, it's possible I've misunderstood MMT, but that's, that's the best I can give you. And what would change your mind at all uh, in terms of you, you saying a lot of concerns about inflation are overstated? W- what do you think would change your, your, your view there? Basically, you know, I take my cue from the financial markets. So I, I have this maxim, uh, good economists don't forecast, they infer market forecasts. So I believe that what economists should do is try to figure out what the markets are forecasting, because I think markets tend to be more efficient than economic computer models of the economy. So if the markets start signaling uh, a concern about inflation, then I would change my mind. Now, obviously, the markets are only going to change their mind if there's some actual changes that occur in the policy realm. And uh, we could at some point get into a new world where a new set of policymakers comes in that are much less hawkish and are are rebelling against the previous generation of boomers who got us into this low inflation trap and they swing too far the other direction. You know, we've seen these sort of like generational swings from, you know, long periods of too tight money, say between the two world wars to uh, too easy money in the 60s and 70s to excessively tight money in recent decades. 
And it seems to be kind of like one generation learning the mistakes of the previous generation and then swinging too far in the other direction. So that could happen at some point. Uh, I do think a lot of younger people, economists and pundits and reporters are a little bit puzzled why people of my generation, you know, I'm 64 years old, you know, still worry about the inflationary effects of stimulus. Um, Personally, I I don't worry that much, but a lot of people in my age group do. And that's why those are the people that typically run central banks. So their formative experiences were in the 60s and 70s, and they were taught to worry a lot about things getting out of hand with inflation. And the policymakers who created the inflation in the 60s, their formative period as young people was in the 30s, and they worried a lot about unemployment. That's the major reason we got into the high inflation of the late 60s. So those generational swings do eventually affect policy, and you know, at some point that could happen. But right now, the financial markets are still worried about excessively low inflation going forward. How should uh, the U.S. think about, or how should we think about the sort of U.S. Um, or the dollar's sort of status as, as the reserve currency? Is there any fear over the next few decades that that could change and what would need to happen for that to change? How, how, how should we think about what, what that means and how secure that is and, and how could that, what, what could that mean going forward? I don't think it'll change in the near future uh, or even maybe the medium term. I'm not sure how much of a problem it would be. I guess the standard theory is that the U.S. benefits in one sense that foreigners like to hold our treasury bonds, so we're able to borrow money at a lower interest rate. Um, but that benefit is probably fairly modest. You know, we, we probably borrow at only a slightly lower interest rate because the treasury bonds are so popular. Keep in mind that a lot of countries like Germany and not just Germany, but many other developed countries, I think even like Canada, borrow at a lower interest rate than the Fed, perhaps because of lower inflation expectations. So any interest rate benefit that the U.S. gets from uh, being the global currency is fairly modest. On the downside, people argue that because the dollar is so popular and people want to buy a lot of treasury bonds, they run trade surpluses with the U.S. So in this view, this hurts the U.S. because the U.S. then has a trade deficit. Uh, but again, I think if you look at the data, first of all, the U.S. Uh, deficit, overall deficit uh, in current account is only about 2.5% of GDP. Even if the dollar wasn't a reserve currency, um, we'd probably still be running a modest trade deficit. So I think that's also a fairly small factor. So it's something that international economists and pundits like to talk about. But to be honest, I don't think it really has much impact on the U.S. economy. Now, it does matter in this sense, I should add, the dollar is also very important in all sorts of international trade and borrowing. So U.S. monetary policy has a disproportionate impact on the global business cycle. If you have a tight money policy in the U.S., it makes it harder for people in, say, developing countries that have loans denominated in dollars. And so there's all these kind of ripple effects because of the fact that the dollar is so widely used And it it basically means that U.S. monetary policy is especially important, more important than just the size of the U.S. economy. The European economy is, I think, roughly comparable in size to the U.S. economy, but the the euro is just much less influential currency. And the same with China, obviously, as well. Let's talk about what's happening with the euro and just Europe in general 
you you went on the record and said that if, if something happens, then we would deploy much more expansionary policy. What, what has happened? What is happening? And how are we responding to it? So that should we respond to it? Yeah, what's happening? Let me talk about Europe. The, the point I made earlier about how generations you know learn one lesson and so on and, and react to it. Europe had the misfortune of creating the ECB at a time when policymakers had grown up worrying about inflation. So the ECB was um, sort of like this foolproof device out of Dr. Strangelove to you know avoid creating inflation under any circumstances. And in addition, it also had some of the downside of the gold standard, something that was sort of a, like a weapon that was hard to disarm. And so prior to the euro, countries like Greece and Italy that got into trouble could have devalued. Now, that wouldn't have solved their long-run growth problems, but it would have solved their acute, you know, deflationary unemployment uh, debt problems. And the ECB was created with a bias towards low inflation, more of a bias even than the Fed has. And when this crisis hit, this bias basically caused the ECB to mishandle the 2008 crisis much more uh, severely than the Fed mishandled the crisis. Even though the financial crisis was mostly in the U.S. initially, the recession ended up being much deeper in Europe because of the tight money. And even today, uh, the problem has not gone away. Um, there's a lot of friction between countries that are struggling, like Italy, that would like to do more fiscal stimulus, but really can't do so uh, because of the constraints of the euro. And the Northern European countries that are worried about unlimited debt obligations being made to Southern Europe. So they're in a very difficult situation, in some ways even worse than the gold standard, because under the gold standard, countries could leave overnight, like Sunday night, they could announce a devaluation. But you can't leave the euro as easily because they actually are all using the same physical currency. So it's impossible to come up with a brand new currency overnight. And that means that if you announce you're going to start printing a new currency, go back to the lira or drachma, there'll be a run on your banking system and it'll collapse almost overnight. On the previous system, you could devalue before people had a chance to pull their money out of the bank. So it was like a fait accompli. So the ECB, the euro system, is almost a perfectly constructed device for making a deflationary crisis worse. Um, So I'm somewhat pessimistic about the European situation. For the United States, I'm a little more optimistic, but even here, I think we're, we're falling short. We may luck out if the medical situation improves, then it'll be much easier to deal with. But if people continue social distancing for a year, year and a half, we could end up with a very deep recession or even depression in the United States for quite some time. But there again, monetary policy will have a role to play. The way I think of it is in the very, very short run, monetary policy can do almost nothing because of people being stuck at home. But as quarantines start being lifted or lockdowns or whatever being lifted, and you at least get some revival of business, as that occurs, monetary policy will gradually play a bigger and bigger role in the course of the real economy. So right now it can do almost nothing. Maybe by mid-summer it can do a modest amount. Maybe by 2021 it can do a lot. But there's a real danger that by this summer or by 2021 it won't be doing what it should be doing which is ensuring that inflation stays on track and not falls into uh, the 
near zero level that I think is likely. Let, let's say social distancing ends in the next three to six months and life is sort of back to normal with no, no flare-ups. Is it sort of a, um, everyone's back to work now or is, are there deeper structural things that, ha- that happen with, with unemployment? Like, what are your thoughts on, on, on how that works? Yeah, if we really had sort of a miracle cure where people were really just comfortable doing anything, I think we probably would get a V-shaped recovery. And that's because the, the very things that the Fed has done that haven't been enough, haven't been all that effective in this environment would suddenly become much more effective in that alternative environment where people are flooding out and making up for lost time shopping and so on. You know, you, you can never judge the stance of monetary policy in a vacuum. Whether you look at interest rates or QE or whatever, it's always relative to the underlying condition of the economy. With this extremely weak economy, economists use this concept of a natural or equilibrium rate of interest. That's fallen to just an unprecedentedly low level. So even cutting rates to zero isn't enough. But if you ended the medical crisis, the equilibrium or natural rate of interest would rebound quite a bit just on its own. And so that same interest rate would constitute a more expansionary policy than it does right now. And we know from previous deep recessions that very, very sharp V-shaped recoveries are possible and in fact are fairly common actually in American history. What's actually atypical is a recovery from the Great Recession of 2008. That was a very slow recovery, 2 to 2.5% growth per year. Normally, you get growth rates of 6 or 8% a year after deep recessions, like after 1982 or 1921. Even the Great Depression had fast growth for a few years, but there was unfortunately a double dip um, that occurred in that one. But Quite often, deep recessions are followed by a V-shaped recovery. And I think it would be if we had a, you know, very quick resolution of medical situation. If we have something that's sort of half and half, which I think is more likely, then I think what we get will very much depend on the policy response, and especially monetary policy. I'm, I'm, I don't think fiscal policy does much. But... Um, if we do level targeting and whatever it takes, we can get a, a pretty robust recovery, even with some continued social distancing. Uh, without that, I think we could have a, a fairly deep slump extending into next year. What, just as an aside, um, I think a lot of people in the media overestimate how much of all this re- resides on decisions by governors, uh, whether to lift lockdowns and so on. I'm not saying that's not a factor at all, but I do think that if the virus continues to be fairly widespread, even if you lift a mandatory lockdown, people will sort of voluntarily continue to take many fewer vacations and eat out less often and, I don't know, work from home, drive less. There'll continue to be a lot of changes in behavior, you know, put off going to the dentist, et cetera, that will have a surprisingly big effect on the economy. Something I I saw on Twitter, I think this is correct, someone tweeted that in the first quarter, almost half of the decline in uh, GDP growth was from a fall in the medical healthcare sector. And how shocking that is. You know, we have this enormous crisis that you would think would call for a lot more medical activity, right? 
And people were so afraid of going to doctors and hospitals and dentists and so on that the actual production of the medical sector fell more sharply than the rest of the economy. That tells you something about how much of a problem this is, you know, people's reluctance to uh, expose themselves to the virus. So I think sometimes people underestimate how much of this, you know, there's this debate about, you know, Sweden versus Norway and so on. That's an interesting debate, but it's much more than just government decisions. A lot of this social distancing is, you know, things that happened even before the government did lockdowns, you had the NBA cancel its season, you had lots of, you know, universities shutting down voluntarily, private universities voluntarily shutting down. So there's much more here than just government mandates that, that is a threat to economic growth. And, and what's your take, by the way, on the, on the lockdowns? Should, should, for how much longer should they be? Should they not have happened? If you were sort of running the governmental levers here, what, what would you do? That's a complicated question. I think that we handle this very poorly. Um, but when I say we, I don't even mean specifically, you know, the president or the government as a whole, although that's part of it. But society as a whole clearly did poorly. We didn't take it seriously. There's so much we don't know. I mean, you can clearly look at a lot of countries that took it more seriously. You know, Taiwan, South Korea, they've done much better. There's other situations like Canada versus Australia. You know, Australia has done just incredibly well compared to Canada, but I don't know whether that's weather or policy choices. There's so many uncertainties here. My general thought is that I I tend to lean towards voluntary social distancing, although I wouldn't rule out that you might need some mandatory social distancing if there's a danger of just overflowing hospitals, a real acute problem. So it might even depend according to which region of the United States you're in. But um, I I do think that, uh, you know, where I live in Orange County, I don't think that it would make much difference at all if they lifted the uh, official government mandates. I don't think people's behavior would change very much. We're hit not very hard at all here in Orange County. Uh, I do know that there's many parts of the world that have been very successful in controlling this and businesses remain open, restaurants remain open. But on the other hand, where it's gotten out of hand, that same sort of leniency would perhaps create a crisis uh, where, you know, the epidemic gets out of control. So um, I don't have real strong views on exactly what policies are appropriate, but I I do think that the mistakes were made earlier. Um, The the countries that took it seriously and, and did a lot of the Things like, you know, extensive testing and quarantining people infected and um, wearing masks and so on seem to just have very, very low rates, even if they were among some of the first infected countries. Now, it could be for reasons that have nothing to do with those factors I just cited, but it it still is very interesting to, to look at that. And I think that in the U.S. and Western Europe, there was sort of a breakdown at a societal level, just an unwillingness to admit to ourselves in February that this was an oncoming crisis. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, it looks obvious that it was going to sweep the world. But, and there were people saying that, of course, in Feb- February, and even January. But I don't think many of us, including myself, deep in our bones, really thought this was going to happen. I mean, obviously, if we thought it was going to happen, if we had done all these lockdowns a month earlier, it probably would have been much more effective, right? So. Um, 
you know, that was the big mistake, not taking it seriously enough earlier on. I think if we had taken it seriously, then we could have gotten by without such a severe shutdown of the economy and operated on a more voluntary basis, as you see in some other countries. Yeah. Uh, a cu- couple of last questions. One is more of a first principles question, and forgive me if it's a bit dense. Why is inflation so important in, in the first place? Why, why is it important we have 2%? Is it so that people feel that they're getting richer? Or is, is that one element of it? Or, or you, Because you know, it's the Austrian school or, or the cryptocurrency community, sort of, you know, Bitcoin is deflationary currency. It's sort of, you ask, why, why is inflation so important in the first place? Right. Well, it's, it's not important for the reasons that a lot of people might assume. That is, we don't keep it low to help shoppers or to help people, you know, so their, quote, cost of living uh, doesn't go up as much because, in the long run, higher rates of inflation are associated with higher rates of wage inflation as well. So the real costs of inflation are due to other factors. Um, our, because of our tax system, high inflation tends to hurt savers and investors. It, it imposes implicitly a higher real tax on their activities. And it creates some other distortions in the economy. More frequent price changes are necessary and, and so on. The actual cost of inflation, it doesn't matter a whole lot whether it's, you know, one, two or three percent a year on average, as long as it's stable. But I would even go deeper than that. The inflation rate isn't really the variable that best measures the cost of unstable monetary policy. I think that the better variable is nominal GDP growth. So if we keep nominal GDP growth, that is total dollar spending in the economy, growing at about four percent a year. You know, on average, we would probably have about 2% inflation, but it would vary a little bit year to year. And that variation would be appropriate because stabilizing nominal GDP growth actually does a better job of stabilizing two key markets. One is the financial market and the other is the labor market. So if you think about why unstable inflation is bad, one argument is that like a sudden bout of deflation causes unemployment and a banking crisis. Okay, that can happen, but a better indicator of unemployment and a banking crisis is falling nominal GDP. So that correlates better. So if we really want to sort of stabilize the labor market and stabilize the financial system, keeping nominal GDP growing at about 4% a year is probably better than keeping inflation growing at 2% a year. But the, the, the basic argument for keeping inflation low and stable is it provides a more stable economy, a more efficient economic system. And I, I, maybe I kind of glossed over, there's actually two points here. The stability of inflation is aimed at keeping unemployment low and keeping you know, the financial system stable. The fact that you prefer 2% inflation to 12% inflation is that 2% inflation is better for saving and investment than 12% inflation. So it's kind of two issues there, the stability of the rate of inflation and the lowness of the rate. And 2% is often viewed as kind of a sweet spot that avoids problems that you get with going to either extreme. But, you know, there's advocates of 4% inflation. There's advocates of zero or even mild deflation. Um, I'm not too persuaded by those. But, you know, there, there are different points of view on what the trend rate of inflation should be or the trend rate of nominal GDP growth. So and just uh, unpack it again, if we didn't have inflation, what would be the negative as sort of a, you know, a, a base goal? What would be the negative uh, impacts of that? Oh, zero inflation versus 2%, you mean? Yep. yep. Well, the argument for 2%, there's a couple arguments. Um, 
One is that a little bit higher inflation keeps nominal interest rates a little bit higher. And when interest rates fall to zero, it's harder to do monetary policy effectively. So that's one argument against zero inflation. Another argument against zero inflation is that the labor market works a little bit more smoothly because people have money illusion. That is, they think in nominal terms, not real terms. So this is kind of a weird argument, but basically the idea is that in a world where you have a little bit of inflation, the average rate of nominal wage increase each year is a little bit higher. And in that world, when uh, an industry gets into trouble and has to have a slower rate of wage increase to preserve jobs, they can simply give workers a smaller pay increase. But if you have zero inflation and that industry gets into trouble, you actually have to cut nominal wages. And workers are very realistic resistant to nominal wage cuts for sort of psychological reasons. And for that reason, uh, you often get unemployment rather than nominal wage cuts. So um, it's sort of this psychological barrier to um, nominal wage cuts. Maybe for your listeners, I could give you this thought experiment. Think of the people at your company and whether they would be more upset by getting a 4% raise in a year of 5% inflation or getting a 1% wage cut in a period of zero inflation. I mean, if you think about it, I think most people would be more upset about the 1% wage cut in zero inflation versus a 4% increase in a year of 5% inflation, even though formally in real terms, they're the same. But people tend to think of their wages in nominal terms. So it's kind of an odd argument, but it's sort of like oil that smooths the engine, you know, like a little bit of inflation maybe makes the labor market work more smoothly. Totally. And then lastly, you, you talked about uh, one of the big debates today that the Fed is, um, you know, whether monetary policy works at zero. What are the other big, big, uh, or what's one other or any, any other big debates that are happening um, that, are, that are worth mentioning that we haven't discussed? Or a variation of this question would be, uh, is slightly different, would be, you know, what, what's the biggest disagreement you have with Paul Krugman? <laughs> well, I think the current debate on monetary policy is how much should the Fed get into credit market activities? It's becoming much more involved in activities that it previously shunned, like uh, buying junk bonds, for instance, or uh, you know, corporate bonds, and um, facilitating uh, loans to small businesses and so on. It's not directly lending to small businesses, I believe, but yeah, that's that's the area of controversy today. In terms of Paul Krugman, uh, he he's a very interesting figure. I've disagreed with him a number of times in um, my blog over the last decade. Uh, at the same time, I think he's a very a formidable uh, debater. He's one of the most brilliant economists in the world and one of the best writers. He's sort of the modern-day Keynes in a sense. And uh, I actually agree with him on more things than... Um, people suspect. The only time I, I met him, I told him that I thought his 1998 paper, Liquidity Traps, was an underappreciated uh, gem, one of the most important macro papers. So our disagreements are actually kind of subtle. I think that he underestimates the extent to which monetary policy is effective at the zero bound. And I think he, like many Keynesian economists, sort of looks at the picture of low rates and QE not doing much and mistakenly assumes that they also wouldn't do very much in a more 
uh, effective monetary regime like level targeting with a whatever it takes commitment. Or perhaps the disagreement is that he thinks such a commitment by a central bank would be just politically too hard to do, whereas I don't think it should be too hard to do. So I know in the past, sometimes when I've debated him, it's really boiled down to almost to whether, not whether central banks could do something, but he just sort of thought <clears throat> they're more, they're too conservative ever to take the steps they need. So we need to use fiscal policy where I was arguing, well, they should do those steps. And eventually they do learn and the past things that were viewed as unacceptable, unacceptable, like inflation targeting later did become acceptable. So we have to just keep pushing central banks to, to do what should be done. So yeah, Krugman's a very interesting figure and the points on which I disagree with him are actually often subtle nuances in terms of what is politically possible or not. By the way, I think I mostly agree with his view of MMT as based on things I've seen that he's written about in the past. And, and what is that view? Or what is his view on it? Well, that I think that they kind of mistake accounting relationships for oh, God. Yeah, you're causal yeah. relations. I, I, I don't want to put words into his mouth. He and I both got frustrated where we would seem to try to address a particular point made by MMTers, and they constantly came back and said, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying this, and then we'd address that point. And they'd say, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying this. And he compared it, I think, to whack-a-mole, the game whack-a-mole, where you something pops up and you knock it down and it pops up somewhere else. So there's definitely... Uh, I think both of us have a little bit of skepticism about their theoretical model that underlies everything they're doing. Although he, he says he might agree with their particular policy prescriptions uh, in a zero interest rate environment. Just to return to the, to the credit markets for, for a second, uh, per your earlier comment that the Fed should be getting into more risky assets, does that, does that mean that you are supportive and a believer that they should be getting more into the credit markets? Again, uh, I missed maybe the first part of your question. I, so let, tell me if this answers it. I think the Fed should have the ability to buy whatever it takes to hit its target, but it should refrain as much as possible from getting into the credit markets and you know, leave that to Congress. If Congress feels they need to you know, bail out banks or whatever, my personal view is a lot of these credit problems are fundamentally monetary. If we, if we do enough to get monetary uh, get nominal spending growth back up to the trend line, or at least back up next year to the trend line, a lot of the credit problems would be much less severe. So I think we're often misdiagnosing credit problems. Uh, we're assuming those problems are causing the weak economy, where often the weak economy or lack of nominal spending is causing the credit problems. But again, I do favor the Fed having the authority to buy whatever it takes to hit its target. And I could imagine a scenario where that would force them to buy some risky assets, such as corporate bonds. And if that's necessary, then so be it. It's better to take some risk than to have a deep depression. You know, there's uh, sort of questions on should the airlines industry be bailed out? Or do you, do you have sort of a, just a bailouts in general, a framework for what should or shouldn't be bailed out? Yeah, I'm not really a fan of, of those bailouts. I mean, you know, there, there perhaps are some arguments I'm not aware of. Um, that would push in the other direction. I, I'm not sure whether we're, what's the purpose of bailing out the airlines right now? Is it to provide essential service 
to flyers. I guess a lot of the airplanes are flying almost empty and maybe that's due to bailout money. There might be some targeted way to provide essential transportation services. Bank, airlines, as you may know, often go through bankruptcy and keep flying through bankruptcy. But now in this super weak economy, you know, they may not even be able to fly. So maybe the goal here is to provide some sort of airline service as almost a national security thing. So I don't know all the specific reasons, but I, I, if you're talking about just bailing out companies to save jobs, like we bailed out GM and Chrysler during the Great Recession to save jobs, no, I'm, I'm not in favor of that. You know, they'd go into bankruptcy proceeding, they'd be reorganized, the factories that are potentially profitable would keep operating under some sort of management and, and so on. But I don't want to be counted with the sort of like, hardcore right-wingers that just say liquidate everything, I'm favoring a much more expansionary monetary policy, which would be very, very good for debtors in the U.S. economy. If we raised inflation expectations above where they are now and nominal GDP growth expectations, that would help borrowers a lot. And I think it would be actually a more effective way than just targeted bailouts for specific firms. Because let's face it, most of the small businesses in America are likely never to benefit from these programs, right? From what I've read, only a small portion are, are receiving loans. So when you do monetary stimulus, everybody benefits. It, it's, I think, a much more even-handed way of helping the business sector as a whole than just targeted bailouts. Um, but I'll defer opinion if there might, might be some national security arguments in certain cases, then Maybe Congress might have to do something there, but I haven't really seen good arguments for bailing out companies. <clears throat> I worry they're just trying to help shareholders and, and debt and creditors in some of these cases. Are there are there any other programs you prefer for for to help address un, uh, unemployment or sort of fiscal uh, methods, or you think monetary policy is gets that or the best there? Well, you know, in the very short run, unemployment is is due to this the shutdown. Over time, I think we want to, you know, make sure the unemployment program is targeted for the actual needs of the economy. Now it's almost impossible for them to do too much. But very soon, I think they probably should uh, go back to the original unemployment insurance program, with the exception that it should be extended to many more people that didn't qualify in the past. Right now, I think they've made the amounts much larger. But in the long run, they don't want to do that because that would actually slow down the reemployment of people. Uh, but they probably do need to widen the coverage so that a wider variety of people qualify for unemployment. In terms of getting people back to work, I mean, you can always do things like deregulation to make it easier to hire workers. That can help a little, but really it doesn't do much in this crisis. To, to actually get people back to work, you, you first of all need to resolve the medical situation so there's less social distancing and then you need enough monetary stimulus so people are spending enough for the economy to be at close to full employment. So I know I'm sounding uh, like a one-trick pony here, but really monetary policy is essential in the long run to getting back to full employment once people are able to physically go back to work and where shoppers are able to physically go back to stores and restaurants. Totally. I, uh, I think that's a good place to, to wrap. My, my guest today has been uh, Scott Sumner. Uh, if you want to go deeper on Scott's work, I highly recommend the moneyillusion.com. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's his uh, longtime blog and it's a, it's a great one. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it. 
if you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.